Citycast from Explicity. Aleph is one of those anachronistic souls never entirely at home with the bewitching half-truths and outright lies, the instant gratification and noxious narcissism, the utterly spooky and yet workaday magic of the internet. He is a habitual attractor of devastating viruses and killer spyware to all the computers he's ever been set up on. Somehow, he always manages to click on the wrong thing. After the latest machine became too confused and confusing to work on, he gave up and decided for a time to write his thoughts by hand and search for his facts in real books. Today, sitting in an old library in Old Delhi, he types on the laptop he has borrowed from his son a series of questions into the great oracle of the search engine. Is it possible to develop warm feelings towards someone you have met just once? Is it possible to be drawn to an old flame all over again? Should one confide in one's best friend if one is attracted to his former love? Should one allow oneself to fall? He is presented with a riot of answers, all seeming to describe people not him and all offering solutions that have likely been created on the couches of American therapists. One of Aleph's librarian acquaintances settles into the chair next to him, and Aleph hurriedly pulls up the pages he was meant to be studying on those shining lights of long ago. The man wants to talk as he always does. His name is Bedil, and he has worked here for ages, without appearing to have gained much from the old novels that line the walls, the bound volumes of colonial gazetteers stocked on the first floor, bulky archives of newspapers in three languages, the handwritten manuscripts in Urdu and Sanskrit, locked away in metal cabinets, the tattered hardbacks left behind by English men and women who visited Delhi in the preceding centuries all of it swathed in the high volume of dust that is prerequisite for a government-run institution. Bedil likes his job here, to preside over students reading study manuals to crack exams, and jobless old men who come for the newspapers and the breeze from the fans. He likes to drink tea all day and wander lazily, along with his colleagues, if the municipality of Delhi will give them funds for that long-promised renovation, or if this hundred-year-old library will fall apart as it has slowly been doing. The best literature touches our hearts and our minds. It triggers our emotions and makes us think critically about the world around us by challenging our assumptions and consequently expanding our understanding of what it means to be human. Good literature can help us navigate our own emotions and motivations and help us see the world through the eyes of the writer. Some writers write from the heart, some from the head. The truly literary among them speak from the junction of emotion and reason and this is what makes their literature powerful. It is also what allows us to connect with their characters and their stories on a deeper level. 
My guest today is an example of such a writer who can write from the heart and from the head. She is novelist Anjum Hassan. Anjum grew up in small-town India, in Shillong, Meghalaya, as we can imagine, an idyllic setting in which her early impressions of life and culture took root. She now lives in the urban sprawl of messy modern Bangalore. Judging from her earlier novels, she is comfortable in both skins. Anjum's ability to traverse the two landscapes of small-town India and the ambition of Bangalore is seamless. And this could well be one reason why her insights are not just quick and keen, but unusual. And it is this sense of insight that has led to some pretty evocative, well-crafted prose. A good example of that is her latest novel, History's Angel, a powerful and moving story about lives in a time of rising religious phobia. History's Angel explores the protagonist Aleph's challenges of navigating an increasingly incomprehensible contemporary India, where political unrest is the norm and nostalgia is one's refuge. The story offers a perspective on the larger context of asserting humanity in the face of widening social fissures. Anjum Hassan, apart from her novels, is someone I have always admired in general for her prose. Her writing is sharp, compassionate, and darkly witty. But what gets me the most is her ability to craft sentences that are elegant, but also accessible. I have always wanted to talk to her about her craft and her novels, and so now here she is joining me from her family home in lovely Shillong, Anjum Hassan. Welcome to the Literary City. Thank you, Ramji. A pleasure to be speaking to you from Shillong. How are you doing? Very well, thanks. Now, you and I live in Bangalore, so it's only correct that we talk when you're in Shillong, 2,000 kilometers away, right? Could be more. Yeah, it's strange. Yes, it is strange. Well, I'd like to plunge right in and uh, start with a rather easy observation that your writing is at first introspective, but also introspective in the sense that you get into the minds of your protagonists and they become introspective. Yeah, I think when I started writing fiction, I believed that that's what fiction is about, mm -hmm. right? I thought uh, novels are written about vast mind spaces and these characters who inhabit these spaces then sometimes come out and also talk to other people, but they spend a good part of their while uh, brooding, daydreaming, introspecting, whatever you call it. Right. But as time went by and I and I produced these novels one after the other, I noticed that as a trait. And then I thought, okay, so maybe it's me mm -hmm. or maybe it's the kind of fiction I like that tends to have very dreamy and broody characters. But yes, I think that's very precious to me, the space to be able to do one's own thinking. And I guess it's connected to individuality. And hence, these characters are always, you know, trying to sort of fine-tune their place or find their place even in these uh, worlds that they, that they come from. Yes, that's evident. Now, I'm a big fan of first lines, and I have uh, become quite a fan of your first lines after reading you. So let's take a look at a few of them. This one from The Cosmopolitans. Nostalgia was big. That paints a pretty picture. No pun intended. You'll, you'll explain that. And from Neti Neti, this one. 
birds calling urgently through the open window, evocative, and from your first novel, Lunatic in My Head, Pine Trees Dripped Slow Tears. So tell me about writing these first lines. What video are you playing in your head or your protagonist's heads? Yeah, yeah. Well, what the reader gets, obviously, is the first line. Right. But what I have is the character, mm -hmm. right? And that, for me, is central. Okay. The great obsession. How do I create this central character around whom this universe is going to revolve? And what sort of person is she or he? Mm -hmm. And what sort of things do they notice? And how do they talk about these things to themselves? So the first line is really uh, the character speaking, even if it's written in my voice. Yes. It is setting the tone for the personality. I get it. So, for instance, the line from Cosmopolitan's Nostalgia was big. Mm -hmm. It's the name of an artwork. As you know, because you've read the novel. I have. So my, my heroine is in an art gallery and there's this huge installation, giant scale. So I wanted the novel to start with her looking at a work of art. And the work of art is called Nostalgia, but it, it acquires a double meaning till you actually read the whole chapter. Because it could also mean that she is just nostalgic, which she is. She's lived through a couple of different periods in Indian urban life, the pre-90s and the much more relaxed attitude to the world, and then this sort of more money-making emphasis that came into even the arts. And so nostalgia was big, or nostalgia is big, could play both ways. And the first line of History's Angel, someone's remembered the living. Yes, to me it's again emblematic of the way Alif sees his city. He's somebody who belongs to Delhi and he sees that there are these bowls, platters of food that have just been put out on the street for stray animals. And it seems to him such a kind, almost old-fashioned thing to do in a city that is so harsh in some respects. And so to begin with this very tender sort of delicate, compassionate image of people just caring for not just each other, but also for the animal world, I thought would be a nice uh, opening. And then the contrast with the later things that happen. So do these lovely opening lines just come to you or do you have to work on them? I don't think about them because then if you do, you will come up with a very clunky and descriptive and heavy-handed line. So I, I let the plot and the character just settle in my mind and I'm I'm writing bits of it, and then the opening line will just come. Oh, I'd like to think that it's uh, skill, it's, it's craft. Uh, I'd like to think that it was the best of times, it was the worst of times, didn't just happen. Yeah, that's a great opening. That's impressive. I don't know if I'm there yet. Yeah, well, your opening lines are pretty good. So I'd like to move on from there and talk about your novel, The Cosmopolitans. Now, this one has an undeniable existential quality, and you can tell that from how your protagonist, Kainath, is on this quest for self-discovery. But the question of her belonging is one of cultural identity, but also social identity, set in an art buyer's world, often seen as pretentious. So what strands of narrative did you employ to, uh, to weave this tapestry? Yeah, so... 
Cosmopolitans is a novel about the art world, art making, art buying and selling, all of those more sort of public facing, outward facing things. And I wanted to drop a character into that who feels that art should be more about a kind of a private journey, sense of being in the world and not so much to do with how much did an artwork sell for or how to be a certain kind of art collector and tracking right. the journeys of famous artists and all of that talk that started to grow maybe in the last 20 years or so much more strident. So her own journey is kind of a sense of doubt about whether all that matters so much. And if it doesn't, then what matters? Right. That is what I meant by the existential quality of the book. And to that business you talked about socially fitting in, there's a rather telling quote early on in the book. It goes like this. Everyone's wearing their idea on their sleeves, exclaimed Tanya impatiently. I see work from India and often it's just so, you know, loud. There's lots going on right off the starting gate here, isn't there? Yeah, I think I'm often asking myself, Ramji, what it means to be Indian. What does it mean to be a contemporary Indian? What does it mean to be a modern Indian? And as you right. know, in that novel, there's this rather strange um, figure called the king. He, he, he comes from a family of former royalty in a small Indian town, and he still calls himself a king. And he, he tells Kayanath at various points, being a modern Indian is hard work. <laughs> and I agree. You know, so the idea that our identities are not set and we're constantly trying to ask, what does this mean? And sometimes it becomes too deliberate. I think that's what Tanya is getting at in the quote that you just read out. But to me, it's like the question is not settled. I think my novels are exploring that, you know, what are the challenges to being a comfortably adjusted modern Indian and how do we address those? Right. I totally get it. Your novels have a strong sense of social commentary hmm. running through them. And in, in this case, we are talking about art. And art is nothing if not for patronage, historically. Hmm. And truly, you know, patronage is also a euphemism for control. So the bit about the prime minister objecting to the arts kind of bring Hussein to mind, doesn't it? Yes, 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 absolutely. So from that point of view, has your writing been reactive to, to the social conditions and the political conditions of the day? It is a response. I'm not sure if it's a reaction, because to me, a reaction is more immediate and sometimes less effective. Uh, and it, it takes different forms. I think reactions are all around us on social media, maybe in journalism, maybe in a certain kind of editorializing, you see reactions. But I think with the with the novel, you have the luxury of time, some time to think about how you want to respond to all these things. And you step back and put them into the flesh and blood of a novel. So it has to be through characters and you have to give them lives, you have to give them personalities. So one hopes that all of this somehow creates something like a response. And of course, there will be characters in the novel who are reacting very unthinkingly even sometimes. 
uh, others are others are more circumspect so the whole of that conversation becomes a response to the moment and i think you're right i am responding to the moment uh and i i'm aware of the dangers of that even because in the very thing one is trying to write about one is part of the same pickle <laughs> in a way so to try and write about it is not always easy but i feel like as a novelist i can't think of anything else that would be more important to do that was a rather eloquent distinction between reaction and what was that response now from reading your early novels to your later novels including the present one history's angel to which we will get in a minute uh, your prose appears to have got stronger and your center has uh, held together clearly you read a lot yeah i think reading is just part of life for me it's as natural i i guess as the writing it goes together it it is what i started out with being a reader so i don't see the reading as a project or as you know a discipline or as homework or any of those things it's just what i do it's central to you i can see that yeah absolutely speaking of being a reader i i smiled uh, when i read an essay that you wrote some years ago in paris review and it came across that you were fairly well read into russian authors what exactly attracts you to them we'll be back after a quick break do you ever wish you could sit in on a conversation with some of your favorite authors and listen to them talk about their writing process their path to publication and of course their newest novels hi i'm marissa meyer best selling author of the lunar chronicles and i would love for you to check out the happy writer podcast where every week i talk with other writers about books craft inspiration and how to bring a little more joy into our lives the happy writer is available wherever you get your podcasts or find us on instagram at happy writer podcast i think it's connected to what you said earlier ramji about my interest in social identities and cultural identities nobody has done it as well as the russians i, I do agree they have just written these remarkably compelling novels sometimes even entertaining novels but they never lose sight of the question of who is a russian mm-hmm. and you know in some of the more intense dostoevsky novels for instance the question is out there they're sitting and drinking tea and debating it for hours yes and of course dostoevsky being dostoevsky there's also a lot of drama going on people are also then jumping out of the window <laughs> to run after some to run after some woman or chase some some guy who owes them some money or whatever there's a lot of drama as well but this obsession with identity is a very very russian thing and yeah they all do it beautifully i mean chekhov is just marvelous at you know much more of course in his stories in a much more subliminal way it's not always as upfront as dostoevsky but if you take um there are certain stories where this is more obvious than in others and there are plays like for instance cherry orchard the transitions in in russian society at a certain period it feels so much like something that we can identify with here. Oh yes, we understand that very well. Exactly, exactly. You have this line that you wrote somewhere and I quote, 
science to me was seriousness in a Russian accent. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. You must have been a very young girl when the Cold War was already over, but clearly not young enough to be immune to the uh, influence from soap export films, which is all we had growing up, and that and that magazine, uh, Sputnik, Sputnik Junior. Yes, yes, yes. I remember Sputnik as well. And because we were politically and economically close to uh, the Soviet Union, we had all these, all this Russian literature <clears throat> around everywhere. Yes, absolutely. And so there was all the Russian literature available in Western translations already. But then this Cold War culture, let's call it, which then started to be imported into India, sort of added to the interest, I think, for me, because there were also all those children's books that we used to get at book fairs. Yes. From, you know, Raduga and Progress Publishers and so on, Mir. Yes, Mir. So there's something about the Russian that fascinated me. Again, it could be a very romantic thing, but they had a seriousness that I was missing in Indian, in Indian literature. I think I still feel that way about certain, you know, I I was recently reading this wonderful book called Secondhand Time by Svetlana, Svetlana Alexievich. I hope I haven't got her second name wrong. It's a wonderful book of contemporary Russian history. It's written through just interviews with Russians who have lived through the breakdown of the Soviet Union and the coming of this new Russia that we now are all contemporary with. Mm -hmm. And again, it's the same thing. The way they talk about themselves is so passionate and so compelling and so troubled. Mm -hmm. And she even says at one point uh, through one of the characters that she's interviewing that Russians just never can leave this question alone of what it means to be Russian. They, ne they never can just go out and drink and eat and have a good time. And... As a novelist, that fascinates me. It's like a dream ground for a novelist. So, And I think we also have it in India, but in India we tend to talk more about politics than about deeper questions to do with identity. Right, but I reckon that has to do a lot with our uh, lack of homogeneity. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, we were talking about Sputnik, uh, Sputnik Jr. Yes. And... I remember this one cartoon that I that I saw, and I was I was a young boy, but I was struck by it was making a political statement. Anyway, it was a cartoon of these ultra small Moscow apartments, hmm. and the American basketball team were visiting, huh. and it showed these super tall basketball players having to sleep with their feet sticking out the window. <laughs> Hilarious. <laughs> you mentioned Dostoevsky, well, just a few episodes ago. Uh, the Egyptian writer Ahmed Naji was on the podcast. Now, Ahmed had been jailed in Cairo for two years for allegedly writing objectionable material. But while he was there, he discovered literature wow. and found that his cellmates thought that Dostoevsky was this great source of comic uh, relief. Amazing. <laughs> I, I, I will definitely go back and listen to it. Nagi, no? N-A-G-Y? N-A-J-I. Ah, okay, N-A-J-I. Okay, okay, okay. So let's move on from Russian literature to another of your influences, clearly, Raymond Carver. 
I clearly see the influence of his writing in yours. Raymond Carver has been a wonderful influence. And I think it's interesting because he's just the opposite of the Russians. Yes, that's why I mentioned him. Yeah, it's a very rugged sort of American tradition there, Mm -hmm. where he's describing things so much through their outward aspect. So even when people are feeling great sort of upheavals, it's done in a very minimalist way. Yes, very spare. Yeah, very, very low-key style. It's actually the opposite of a Dostoevskian kind of scene, which is all... Over the top. You know, over the top emotion. People are crying and hugging and <laughs> fighting very violent duels with each other or attacking each other. Yeah, it's high drama. And then Carver is, first of all, he's writing short stories that are pretty short. So there's no space for rushing at each other, uh, at each other's throats. (laughs) But of course, there is grimness, there's disappointment. There's often a lot of disappointment and people feeling that they've led or are leading unfulfilled lives. And yet there's so much emphasis on the physical, small physical everyday details, you know, just things in a room or things people are eating. And that's a wonderful education as well to, to bring in the everyday. And the everyday took a turn for the worse for your protagonist in your latest novel, History's Angel, didn't it? Now, History's Angel is a a fictional uh, story, of course, but it is set in today's angst-ridden atmosphere. There's so much to read online about History's Angel, so I'm going to skip to some specifics. Specifically, this quote from your website, which is, It's a strange and lonely time to be a thinking person in India. Now, that is a political reference, isn't it? It is inevitable, I think, that a character like Aleph would become a bit of a loner because he just sees all angles, you know. He's able to see all sides. And it leaves him floundering a bit because if you are that sensitive and that open-minded, then you can't really take up arms on behalf of any position and that's not always necessarily a good thing because there are times when you may need to act Mm -hmm. and you can't really be a person of action if you're always mulling on the fact that everything that's going on now has a context, has a history, everyone has a point of view, there may be merits to all points of view, however, sometimes misplaced they can seem. Even though he's, he's a Muslim in contemporary North India, he's often on the back foot because of his Muslim identity. Right. And of course, he gets annoyed when he's put in the box like that or when he's mocked at sometimes, but he never is able to see himself as a victim. I got that. He doesn't want to right, do that. Right. He he wants to retain his integrity as somebody who's, who's first of all, just a thinking person. Mm-hmm. That's where that line came from that you quoted that, it becomes a lonely position because people are falling over themselves, I think, to either be in a box or to put other people in a box. And he doesn't want to do that. And even though I said it's lonely, I don't think that it's he's one of his kind. Of course, there are so many people who are still secular in that way. So when I say secular, I don't mean in the obvious constitutional sense that you accept all religions and you worship, every, uh, you, you accept everyone's view of who they want to worship that's the basic sense of secular but also secular just in the sense of open-minded 
you know, not somebody whose religion is their primary identity. Secular, intellect and reason, words that have a huge overlap and might well be used to describe your protagonist, Aleph. Absolutely. Now, your choice of the name Aleph didn't quite happen by accident, did it? Yeah, Aleph, Aleph the name is us. It is the first letter of... The alphabet, that's what I mean. Yes, yes, yes. So I thought for a literary figure, I mean, he's not literary in any very highfalutin way, but he is a reader and he's aware of what we see all around us and take for granted. So I just thought Aleph had a nice ring to it. And also because of the joint common roots of the Arab and Greek cultures. I mean, Aleph came first because the Greek alphabet is older and then Aleph and then, of course, it go, comes into the Urdu and so it's also part of Hindustani in some way. Right. And and he's an Indian Muslim. So I just thought it would be a nice moment, a nice point of resonance to have him be Aleph. But I also hope that there's enough sympathies among readers to feel like an identification with him because otherwise no novel would work. A couple of other things I want to talk about, one of them is humor. Now, your humor lurks on the underside of your prose. But have you ever been tempted to write an all-out funny book? Yeah, all-out humor, I don't know if I could pull it off. But I like witty writers who are also serious. That's my ideal. Like, I think what you said about Dostoevsky, it's so true. Because he can be very witty, but no one would call him an out-and-out comic writer. That's the best kind of humor to me. I mean, even even Kafka can be funny, though it's so dark. There is a certain desperate humor in Kafka. And I've been rereading E.M. Foster, and I'm finding him incredibly funny. Writers need to find their humor, don't they? Yeah, and I think it also helps if you're doing something like writing a fairly involved novel and you're with it for years, at least three years, maybe four if you can't amuse yourself, then you're going to be in trouble because it's very hard to just be writing in a plodding way out of a plodding sense of responsibility to the subject. So to me, the humor is, is also a way of keeping it alive, you know, keeping it human, keeping a distance from it while at the same time being involved in it. So that distance comes from that ironic eye thing, like you said, just under the surface. I think that's that's like survival. <laughs> that's a survival mechanism but it's also it's also for for me to pull in the reader and keep them hooked right and finally now to the matter of literature and i got this from your foreword to the book future library the quote is who can claim to know or be able to fairly represent all of Indian literature, and who has a handle on the many languages in which this literature is written? Arguably, no one is privy to that omniscient Himalayan view. Now, why is this a consideration in the first place? I don't see a great quest for a pan-European representation of literature. So, why pan-Indian why melt the regions into one pot? Very true. I think that's very relevant. And we tend to be stuck with this category of the nation and use it for everything. Kind of shoehorn everything, including literature. I don't know if it's always productive. I think it's productive when you question it. Mm -hmm. 
and I, and I think I'm able to do that better in a novel like History's Angel, where the, where of course India is there, but you're also asking what is this thing called India? But with this anthology, it's interesting because there's so many anthologies of Indian writing, and they're all in English. Anthologies of writing in other languages are not bothered with the whole of India. I don't think that there's that same painful obsession that we have in English to be representative. No, no, there is, there is. Uh, I, for instance, I've interviewed people who have done some absolutely brilliant translations from different regional languages into English, but it's it's funny to me that there's this purportedly great effort to discover regional literature and then bring it to English. And, and my question is why? And I don't half wonder if there isn't this whole Edward Said post-colonial nest to the whole thing. And it's the thinking that uh, their translations into that English is the accolade to which one must aspire. Exactly like you said, it's all in English that this somehow this anxiety exists. Quite so. Yeah. It's not in another language so much, in other languages, that people want to bring everything of Indian literature into that Indian language and present a comprehensive picture of the country. Good but point. in English, somehow, somehow we feel that we should do that. So I think what I was saying in that introduction, it's uh, you're, 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 you're tussling with that category, Indian, because there's that anxiety of completeness then. Have you covered everything or at least have you covered a good part who have you left right. out? Why have you left out? So I think that remark that you quoted is about that. Like who, it's fair enough to to have that anxiety, but then who is this encyclopedic figure who actually has access to everything? I mean, it's a it's impossible. It's an impossibility that we set ourselves. Mm -hmm. So the better thing to me is to be idiosyncratic about it. Even though you're saying Indian, you are playing with the category and you're showing it in different lights. It would be nice to find another category which doesn't have the pressure of, of you know, a nationalist kind of response. I find that phrase, nationalist kind of response, somewhat scary. That's uh, the handiest tool for political expediency and control, isn't it? Absolutely. And then you have all the little sub-nationalisms that mimic the larger nationalism. Them too. Right? Right. Well, before we go, let's talk about writing as a career. And I want to quote Boswell, who said that Samuel Johnson said, no man but a blockhead ever wrote except for money. <laughs> well, go. Uh, hmm. You know, I was I mentioned E.M. Foster a little while back, and he said that I write for two reasons. One is to earn money, and the other is to win the respect of people I respect. Interesting. Didn't know that one. So I'm not sure about the money part simply because to be a fiction writer in India is actually not to make very much at all. My submit. It's not an economy that supports a living. No, it isn't. I've always, still recently, in fact, I've always had a day job. And I think that's not a bad thing. So I think it's also good to think of it as a journey. When young writers ask me, how do I do it? What uh, choices do I make to ensure that I can write. I, my first advice usually to them is go and get a job <laughs> and then see if you care enough for the writing to do it on the side. Well, I believe that History's Angel ought to sell a ton of copies and make you a ton of money. Thank you so much, Ramji. I need that hope. Well, again, that novel is deserving of that hope. Anjum Hassan, 
Thank you so much for being my guest today on the Literary City. Thank you so much, Ramji. It was a was a huge pleasure. You've been listening to the wonderful Anjum Hassan, author of History's Angel. There's a link in the podcast description to where you can and should buy that book. And I'll be back with that delightful segment, What's That Word?, where we look at words and phrases that we use all the time, but never stop to think about. I'm back. This is What's That Word? And here she is, my co-host. Hello. My name is Pranithi, but you can call me P. That's P with an A. Not another E. P with an A. Do you remember how someone mangled this when we were at my uh, live session interview with Professor Ganesh Devi at Blossom Books? Yes. Someone came up to me and said, hello, P with an E. (laughs) And you said? Well, that was somewhat true. So I had to excuse myself and um, go powder my nose. Powder your nose? (laughs) Have you been reading the Bronte sisters again? (laughs) Yes. Well, close enough. Which book? Middlemarch. Middlemarch. Oh, George Eliot. Yes. Right. I never read that book. Why? Was she always leaving the dinner table to go off and powder her nose? Always. (laughs) With what powder? (laughs) Yeah, right. That's what George Eliot is known for. (laughs) Okay, P with an A, what's that word? Hey, I really liked Anjum Hassan. Mm. She's great, you know, so she's so composed. I enjoyed the conversation. I could tell. I mean, it must be so nice to talk about literature at large. Uh, Very nice. Thumbs up emoji. (laughs) At one point, you suggested to her that her choice of naming her character Alif was not accidental. Right. I figured that she was making a telling association with the first letter of the alphabet and, and so on, you know. Yes, that was clear and she did explain it. But she mentioned its Greek origins. Mm -hmm. But some months ago, when we had David Davidar on our show, I remember you explained the origins of the name of his publishing house, Aleph. Yes, I did. And you had even older references. Somewhat older, mere thousand years or more. (laughs) Okay. And until then, I thought you knew Aleph because you can read Arabic, can't you? Yes, I can read Arabic. I can read the script fluently. I can't understand most of what I read. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, yes, Aleph is the first letter of that alphabet, and it has a rich history, though. And that's what we're doing today. The Mm -hmm. word is Aleph. Great. All right, on to the etymology, please, or origins, or whatever. Yeah, origins. So, this word, Aleph, goes back to ancient Hebrew and the ancient Egyptians. Cool. But is this going to be long? Should I go get popcorn? (laughs) It's so riveting that you'll miss the plot if you so much as go to powder your nose. (laughs) Okay, I'm staying put. All right, here's the mundane part first. The origin of the name Aleph is is believed to have derived from the Hebrew word Aleph. Now, in modern Hebrew, Aleph apparently means champion. And it is also the rank equivalent to general in the uh, Israeli military. So to be a champion means to earn the first place. So this name is very fitting for the first letter of the alphabet. Wait, this is already really fascinating. You know, what's mundane about it? Good. In that case, now consider that Alaf 
in the sense of the rank general. Uh, it might also uh, be related to the number 1000, which in Hebrew is written as an LF, E-L-E-F. Okay. All right. So now a general might command thousands of men, but ideally they reach their position by being better than the other men on and off the battlefield. I can see why. Right. So you will recognize that a leader of the herd, if you like, is also referred to as the alpha male. Aleph, 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 Alpha. Ah, that is so cool. So that's also the etymology of toxic masculinity then. <laughs> toxic masculinity. Sure, if you like. I like. <laughs> anyway, over time, the letter A, or similar sounds, started most scripts of almost any alphabet. Ah, this is fascinating. Also, because it's right under our nose. Like the powder in the bathroom. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I have long stopped trying to not walk into these things. Well, you go willingly to the etymological slaughter, don't you? <laughs> well, at least this does not make me look like a victim. Ah, okay. All right, moving on. So let me take you back to the ancient Egyptians. You've been there, haven't you? You've seen the uh, hieroglyphics. Yes, totally mysterious. Now, let me explain how that relates to what we're discussing today. Yes, please. All right, so since we don't have video, I have to describe everything, which is a pain, but we don't have video. When did that stop you? Oh, once in Marrakesh, but never mind, I'm kidding. Yes. <laughs> so some Egyptian hieroglyphics go like this. Do you remember the symbol that looks like an eye, but with nothing inside it? Yes. Now, that means it's one consonant. Okay. All right. And the symbol that, that's a rectangle, but the bottom line is partial and doesn't it's not completed. Yes, I remember. That means two consonants. And there's one that looks like a sad face emoji with a cross sticking out of its head, and that's three consonants. So anyway, the point that I make is that the Egyptians had no vowels because the script was known as pharaonic picture writing. Right. And because they needed to tell stories, they supported these consonants with little diagrams, also called logograms. Okay, give me an example. Sure. Now, picture this. Imagine the phrase, going to the bar, written without any vowels. G-N-G-T. T-H-B-R, right? Now, mm -hmm. people might even understand that by looking at it. But what the Egyptians did was to include those little pictorial symbols or logograms to further illustrate the story. So G and G for going might have a pair of feet walking next to it. <laughs> All right? To the might have a directional arrow. And bar might, well, it did, have an outlined picture of a jug which appears to be full. That's fascinating. Right. So moving ahead, the Egyptians pretty much invented the alphabet by substituting sounds for characters. For example, they came up with a character to represent the sound b. They called it bet, which is the Arabic word for house or bait in modern Arabic. And this became the second letter of the alphabet. Having already instituted the Aleph as the first, although the Aleph had no value of its own, until combined with the consonant, you see? I can totally see the logic in that. So they um, went along with characters to make scripts more linear and predictable 
and rescue it from the more laborious elements. There's more? There's more. Consider <laughs> that the Aleph was followed by the Bet. Aleph, Bet. And you get? Alphabet. Yes, you got it. You got it. And now they, they also came up with the rest of the alphabet. For example, the Arabic and Semitic uh, word for another essential, life essential, is Ma. Or in uh, Hebrew, I think Mem. And it means water. And its logogram was a squiggle, like waves on the water, right? So it doesn't take much to see how that wave squiggle became an M. Right. And now every child can recite the alphabet, A, B, C, D. Actually, in Arabic, the first four letters are Aleph, Ba, Jim, and Dal, or A, B, J, D. And that's why that system is called Abjad. <laughs> okay. I am now reduced to making wow sounds here. <laughs> well, that's fine. Every performer needs his thumbs up. <laughs> What's with this thumbs up thing? I, I think you're trying to fix me for something I did. Keeps you guessing. But anyway, <laughs> going back to emojis, consider this. Imagine that you wrote going to the bar like the ancient Egyptians did, but instead of logograms, you use modern-day emojis, totally comprehensible in modern communication. And we thus turn a full circle, don't we? Mm. Wow. <laughs> so there's your answer for what's an LF. <laughs> this has been truly, truly fascinating. And as for the example you used... Which one? You mean going to the bar? Ha, ah, I get it. Okay, <laughs> have fun. <laughs> yes, I'm walking emoji, arrow, beer pitcher emoji. Sadly, the Egyptians didn't have an emoji for aspirin the morning after. <laughs> Damn, bye. And that's our show. I'd like to thank my fabulous guest, Anjum Hassan, and my co-host, Pranati P with an A, Madhav, and all of you, well, for everything. Keep those likes coming. Keep those comments coming. And if you like an episode, please be sure to share it with everyone that you know. Well, this is Ramji Chandran saying, until we meet again, have fun. <laughs>